you're like most. You have things in your life that are alive that should have been dead a long time ago, that are still hanging around, that are still nagging, wooing, pulling, drawing. They should have been put to death a long time ago. And if you're also like most, there's some things that have been deadened, that have been numbed, that have been suppressed. For most, for the most part, put to death in your life that never should have. That likely the enemy has lied to you and has stolen away from you. And those things need to be resurrected. Those godly things, those things that are, that are more godlike, more Christ-like, that are revelations of him to a lost world that needs to see him. We need to resurrect those things. That's where the focus of our, of our text takes us today. If you want to turn in your, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, we're going to look at the very end of this chapter and then really the entirety of chapter 28. And it's maybe a little lengthy text for you, but I want you to see this story unfold. Verse 62 of Matthew 27. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he had been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. So then they go quickly and tell the, and then go quickly and tell the disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. Go to Galilee. There, go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went to the city and reported to the chief priests and everything that had happened. And when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor... We'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. We're going to look at the value of resurrecting three things today. There are, there are probably at least a dozen in this text, but we'll have time for about three of them today. The first of which is this, the value of a resurrected promise. The value of a resurrected promise. Look at verses 62 to 65 again. The next day after preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees said to Pilate, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, 
After three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come steal the body and tell the people he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be first, worse than the first. This deceiver is the word they use. Quote, this deceiver said, this liar said, this one who painted himself to be something that he's not said. And bear with me now. These are the religious leaders of that day. These are the pastors, the religious professors, the priests, the folks that hung out at the temple, did holy things and said holy things all the time. These are the, these are the godly men saying, this deceiver, this one who told lies, said he would rise again on the third day. How badly warped are we in our thinking that we, we can point to a perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of Christ and say, this deceiver, this liar, this one who said he'd, he would rise again. Now, fear... <clears throat> causes us to do a lot of things. causes you and me to lock our doors at night, to put burglar alarms, to lock our cars, to put alarms on our house. It causes us to do a lot of things. Maybe not all of it's motivated by fear. Some of it's maybe just be prudence. But fear causes us to do a lot of things we wouldn't do otherwise. And so that's exactly what's happening here to these men, to these Pharisees. They're afraid their influence is going to be gone. They're afraid they're going to be blindsided by the fact that he indeed was Messiah, and we missed it. And now every Jew alive is going to look at us with disdain and, and exalt him and hold him in the place of honor. They were losing their influence and their, their, their notoriety and their fame, and they knew it, and they had to do something to try and squelch that, to, to, to put it aside. My first question is this today for us, and that's this. What has fear caused you to do that you wouldn't have otherwise have done? What has fear caused you to do? Has it caused you to buy a dozen roses, guys? Has it caused you to, has it caused you to say things or do things that you wouldn't otherwise have said or done? Has it caused you to, to think thoughts that you wouldn't have otherwise thought? Has it caused you to spread rumors or gossip about other folks? Has it caused you to look at your adversary with some disdain and try and lower them in order to elevate yourself? What does fear cause you to do? It usually motivates us in, a, in the wrong way. Fear is never, ever a good motivator, ever. Why? Because perfect love, the Scripture says, casts out all fear. It does away with fear in, 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 in total. And so if we are afraid... Our faith is weak. If we're afraid, we're not leaning on a Savior who says, in Isaiah 46, I've got this. I've got you. Trust me. Fear causes us to do things we otherwise wouldn't do. Their, plat- their platform and their notoriety and their fame were threatened, and they began to spread a lie to say that Jesus was a liar, a, a deceiver himself, began to spread a lie in order to cover their own tracks, cover their own fear of the loss of their own, fl- their own influence. Fear is never a good motivator. He promised he would, he would rise again. They knew it, and they had seen enough evidence of his life to say, this may be true. We better post a guard. We better, we better contrive a story and post a guard. The value of a resurrected promise. Secondly, I want to see the value of a resurrected truth. Look at verses 11 to 15 of chapter 28 with me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders, they devised a plan they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you're to say his disciples came during the night, stole him away while you were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So soldiers took the money, did as they were instructed. And this story is widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. These, <coughs> these, these government soldiers, now, get this picture with me. These government soldiers went to the church seeking to tell the truth and learn the truth. Get this. Government soldiers went to the church searching for truth. What did they find at church? They found another lie. In order to say, listen, here's what you need to do. They, quote, unquote, devised a plan. 
these religious leaders, these Pharisees, these men of great wisdom devised a plan, still trying to cover their own rear ends, still trying to cover the tracks and say, if he's alive, if he comes back from the dead, and he did, and they, they heard the rest of the story, now we're in real trouble. Now we've got to make up another story. Here's enough money to keep, hush money to keep you quiet. And so this, this whole idea of, of a resurrected truth being, truth was staring them in the face in, in, in the form of these soldiers who probably had witnessed the most miraculous thing in the world ever witnessed with their own human eyes. Coming to tell the story of truth, and these who should have known truth speaks a lot. The very ones who have seen truth more than, more than anything they've ever, these soldiers experienced on their own and out of their own, uh, their own works and their own goodness. They devised a plan. So whenever our behavior or our mindset are misguided, we, we fall prey into the enemy's hands. Why? Because listen to this John, verse in John eight forty four. You belong, now Jesus is speaking to, this verse is, is to his Jewish followers who were, some of whom were totally with him, some of whom had questions, some of whom were skeptical. This, this words to, to his own people, to, to these Jewish followers. He says this, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, watch this, when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. I've shared that verse with you a number of times before to say, if the devil is talking, the devil is lying. If the devil is speaking to you and I, he's speaking a lie. He's a master deceiver, and he's good at it. He's crafty at it. You know why? Because he knows the end with you. He knows your vulnerabilities. He knows your weaknesses. And he did that very thing to these Pharisees to say, listen, the truth is he's risen. The, the, the sad part about that is if he's risen, I'm toast. I've got to make myself look better in, in, in a lot of this Jewish culture that has elevated me above him to this point. Now my, my, my power, my influence, my notoriety is threatened. Let me come up, let me, let me, let me devise another line. So money's the payoff. Money always causes us to do, to, to motivate it. It gets us motivated in the wrong direction, usually. And that's the very case, case here with these guys. But every lie originates from the enemy. He's, he, he's the originator of this lie with the Pharisees. And so what I want us to see here, if yours and mine is a self-serving faith, meaning my truth, what is true for me, instead of absolute truth, what is true for all of us, if yours is a self-serving faith, it's going to get you in trouble sooner or later. Mine has, and yours probably has too. My self-serving truth, my, my rationalized behavior, my own mindset to say, this is right today for me in this situation has gotten me in more trouble than saying, this is right for me every day in every situation. If we rationalize truth, we're always going to see ourselves as having a way out. If we rationalize truth, we're always going to see ourselves as partially right. If we rationalize truth, we're always going to see ourselves in the right, whether we're, whether we're wrong or not. Now, some of this is caught rather than taught. If we grow up in a home that rationalizes everything that happens, I'm late on my bills. Well, it's my employer's fault. I'm, 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 I'm not true to my marriage vows. Well, it's my spouse's fault. I'm, I'm not faithful to... If we, ra- if we grow up in a home that rationalizes every behavior way to say it's okay in this situation for this given time and moment, guess what? It's going, we're going to have a hard time seeing truth. We're going to see everything rationalized and, and, and the logical ruling the day. The spiritual rules today when he's in charge instead of the logical. And we'll always see ourselves chasing truth rather than finding it. Navigating and defining truth for ourselves rather than seeing it for what it actually is. And so if, we, if, if that's true and we, we, we live this rationalized behavior, what's going to happen to us is we're going to, to in fact, he, he speaks in, in Luke 22. 
about allowing the enemy to sift us like wheat. And he does it for many of us. He's, he's done it in life after life after life to say, listen, this is true for you today. I'll work all that. You, you just hang true to what you want to happen. I'll work all this out with your friends, with your family, with your spouse. You, you, you rationalize truth over here. Make this okay. Make this behavior okay. Make this thought okay. Make this action okay. I'll work it all out with your friends. I'll work, this, this is all going to work out. Trust me. And it never does. You know why? Because truth always has a way of finding us. You know why? Because the Spirit knows nothing else but truth. And if he's pursuing us, if we know him and have a relationship with him, and he's pursuing us, guess what? It's going to be continually reminded of us. This isn't true. You're living, you're living a lie. This isn't true. You're living a lie. Here's truth. This is falsehood. That's, that's, we become exposed when that happens. And none of us like to be exposed. These guys didn't. We don't like it either. So what do we do? We do what they do. We, we may not pay somebody off financially to make it happen. We, we, we pay off friends in, in, in what we tell this one. And have I told this one about that? Have I told this first about the, which, who knows this about me? And who knows? And it's, this, it's just the plates are spinning. And we, you know, from circumstance, from work environment to home environment to friends, the plates are in there and we can't, it's hard to keep up with who we've told what. It's easier just to tell the truth. It's easier just to be, to be honest about who we are or who we're not and who we'd like to be rather than keep the plates spinning. I see life after life of folks that are into their 40s and 50s and still doing that. And I'm thinking, didn't you learn anything when you were 20 years old? Couldn't, couldn't you realize I, you couldn't make all this work on your own? Didn't you ever get that? And they're still, still spinning, still trying to, I mean, come on, see this. Tell the truth. We're not all that. None of us are. And the more we own up to that and realize that, the, the more honest and truthful our witness becomes with people. We think we need, we need to conjure our witness and make it better than it is. And honesty and truthfulness and transparency is the greatest witness that Christ has changed me. If he can change my, own, my black sinful heart, he can do that to you. And that story is more powerful than something we conjure up and make up or, or, or live a lie. Thirdly, not only do we need to see the value of a resurrected promise and resurrected truth, but here, and here's the best part, the value of a resurrected story. Look here in verses 16 to 20, the Great Commission. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said to these doubters, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore... Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Go and make disciples. His last words on earth, go and make disciples. How do we do that? He's saying go encourage, go pray, go demonstrate, go show, go tell, go do those things. In doing those things, those around you will see the evidence of your faith. Those around you will see the evidence of who and what you're committed to. He's saying, as we make disciples, we'll, we, we will evangelize. It amazes me how many churches get this backwards, that we want to evangelize and then figure out how to disciple somebody after they've been evangelized. There's nothing evil with that. It's just backward from Jesus' plan. He's saying, as you disciple folks, as you reveal truth, people will be drawn to the truth they see revealed. And as you start to live this out, and as they start to see and grow in the sense of, this, there's something real about this, he's... He's a person who can come and live in me and have a relationship with me. It's not just some kind of Sunday, Easter, Christmas kind of deal. He is, he is real, and he's, al- he's alive and living in these people around me and can in me possibly. And as I begin to see that truth revealed to me, I begin to desire it. I begin to want it. I begin to, 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 to chase after it, to chase after at least your life and my life that starts to reflect that. Whereas most of us in the kingdom go about 
evangelizing someone who's lost and re- helping them realize you're you're away from you're, you're you're apart from Christ, and so you're away from heaven. And so as they realize that for themselves, we think they're going to long for something that they don't don't even know exists. He's saying, disciple them in the truth, reveal truth. Then as they see truth, evangelism becomes easy. In fact, they chase you. I want tell me how to become a Christian. Tell me what is different about this, how you handle this situation with your kids, because I've not handled that. Tell me, d- tell me what's different about what you do with money, because I don't see my income that way. Tell me what's different about how you handle your marriage, because my marriage doesn't look like yours. And as they start to see truth revealed in front of them, they start to long for Christ. And they don't know that. They're longing for, for your own lifestyle. But as you reveal to them, this is, I walk this way. I believe this way. I, 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 I father, I parent this way. I'm, I, I handle my marriage this way because the convictions I see in the Word of God. Why? Because he lives in me. Do you want to know him personally? Absolutely. And evangelism becomes easy when it's bathed in discipleship. When it's reversed, there's some convincing to have to be done. Because we're saving people and sending them into the lost world in front of a liar who says, this isn't true. You'll never make it out here. What do you think you're doing? Get back in church. What do you think you're doing? You're, you're, you're toast out here. And they are. Why? Because we've not discipled them in the, into any truth. We've just said, here, trust Jesus and your life will change. You know what? They trust Jesus and they don't know enough truth for their life to change. They're thrown back out among wolves, sheep among wolves, the scripture says, and they're devoured. And they figure out, I thought God was supposed to take care of me. I thought I was supposed to be successful. I thought I was, my life was supposed to change and do a 180. Well, it does when I'm exposed to it and start to apply and live truth. But until I get there and I don't know truth to live, I'm, I'm, I'm toast for the enemy. I'm, I'm food for his fodder. So th- this idea of, of discipleship is what the Lord Jesus wants to sow into them. And so his last words, go and make disciples. Tell them what I've told you, he says in verse 20. Tell them my story. Tell them that that's really what the gospel is. Tell them my story. Tell them the story of what you've seen in me and how that's changed you. Now, there's power in, in your, among your friends and my friends. There's power in your witness in our culture when your story meshes with God's story. And you start to say, his story changed my story. My story was headed here. And my story intersected his story, and now my story is headed there. My life has changed because of him. My life has changed because of the gospel. His, his story has now redirected my life to where my story was headed in a direction where it honored and glorified me. Now it's headed in a direction that seeks to honor and glorify him in my marriage, in my life, in my vocation, among my friends. Among my, and my story has changed. The things I want have changed. The things that I pursue, the things that are important to me have now changed. Why? Because my story has intersected God's story and it's changed me. And that's the power of what Jesus says. That's what discipleship looks like. Telling my story in value, in view of your story and how those things intersect to where you're changed. You think differently. Your attitudes are different. You do different things with money. You do different things with marriage. You do different things with friends. Your relationships are, are, are prioritized on far different things than they ever were before. Why? Because your story has intersected my story, and my story has changed yours. That's the power of discipleship. That's the power of our story in saying he's real. Here's why I know he's real, because I walked in addiction. I walked in depression. I walked in a place where I saw no way out, and the only way out was the fact that my story intersected the power of the gospel. It intersected his story. And now my story is deliverance. My story is redemption. My story is rescue. My story story has changed because of his story and how those things have intersected. There's power in your story. I don't care how, how long, whether you've been a Christian five minutes or 50 years, there's power in how God has intersected your life and changed your destiny and your destination. There's power in that, in the lives of people around you. Those stories need to be told. The Easter story is obviously the greatest story of victory that's ever been. Uh, Fulton's won a lot of championships. 
But no story of a Fulton championship can, can compare to the story of these soldiers go back to the, <laughs> to the Pharisees and say, an earthquake happened, a violent earthquake happened, and this stone, weighing several tons, rolled away from the entrance to this tomb. And I wouldn't have believed it ever, either if I didn't see it in my eyes and say, this, this, this happened. The, the, these stories of victory, of how God rolls away things in your life and my life and changes our perspective and our view on things, those things need to be told over and over and over. Why? Because there's power in stories of victory. This is the greatest story of victory ever told, and we need to retell it. Why? Because those things need to be resurrected in our life. The power of resurrection resurrects things within us. The power of the resurrected Lord lives in us and can resurrect the things that have died in us and needs to be brought back to life. So we are in a a culture that is increasingly worshiping at the feet of knowledge, at the feet of science. You can take the entire, and I'm I'm not anti-science, please don't hear that in what I'm about to say. But you can take the, the knowledge of the entirety of the history of science and the knowledge and the entirety of the history of every scientist that's ever lived and living today, and you could fit them in a thimble compared to the knowledge of God. So why are, we, why are we worshiping at the feet of what doesn't work? Why are we worshiping at the feet of conjured truth? We worship at the feet of the one who is victorious over, over the grave because science looks at the resurrection and says, there's no way something like that could happen. I mean, there's, I mean this may, may be the power of synergy and, and you know, electricity and cryogenics and all. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe if some of those things were in, in place in that day and time, maybe a possibility, but as naive and as in, not in this day and time, the, the, the resurrection is totally, it's a hoax. I mean, you can't believe anything. Like People who believe this are weak. I mean, they're, they're, they're needing a crutch. They're needing, and science looks at these kind of stories and says, garbage. People look at how this story has changed us, though, and they see something's real about you. I don't know about this Bible, I don't know, I don't know about your Christ, but something's, something about him has changed you. And as they hear those stories intersect, discipleship starts to happen, growth starts to happen, a hunger for truth starts to happen, a hunger for what's, what's driving you. I want to see that in you. I want to learn about what's happening in you. And so this, this idea of, of, of the knowledge of God, in fact, let me, let me share a few verses with you here from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 10 say this. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, watch this. We declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, these things God has prepared for those who love him. For God has revealed them to us by his spirit, saying what? The miraculous can be real to you. The story of the miracle of the resurrection can be your story day after day after day. Why? As God starts to resurrect in me those things that bring him glory, those things that I've been sitting on and squelching and and, and kept packed away maybe for years, even decades, those things when I resurrect them, when they start to come out of the cracks of my story and out of my life, and people start to see them and hear them again afresh in me, they can start to see God's doing something in their life. I long for that. I long to know what is what God is up to. I long to know what my life is about, and I see that in you. I see a confidence. I see a sense of assurance. I see a sense of you know who you are. You know where you're going. You know what, what, what it's about and what life is up to. I see that in you. I long for that in you. Those are the kind of things that need to be re- resurrected in us. Um, if, you, if you've ever had anything stolen, you've, you know the feeling of violation. 
Um, that's happened to us a time or two. We and the girls were young. Uh, I got some spray paint and splatter paint and, and painted Hannah a bicycle, repainted Hannah a bicycle that I don't remember where the bicycle would come from. It's the cheapest thing I could find. Didn't, didn't have money, enough money to buy her bike. So I found a used one, put a, put a paint job on it. I thought a real, pretty hip paint job on it. She was she looks at it today and kind of makes fun of it. but Or she looks at that bike, not literally, but figuratively, and kind of makes fun of my paint job. But it is what it was. But she rode it nonetheless, up and down the sidewalk and in the, in the parking lot beside our house and, and was, at the time at least, proud of that bicycle. We kept them on the porch, on the front porch of our house, and came home one day, one afternoon, her bike was gone. And... You know, she looks at me and, Dad, where's my bike? I said, I don't know. We left it on the, did you put it back up on the porch? Yeah. You sure? Yeah. We look around the yard, look, in, look walk up and down the streets of the neighborhood, can't find a bike anywhere. Bike's been stolen. Somebody's come up on the porch and stolen the bike. She, of course, gets upset, mad, crying, everything else. And, and I feel kind of violated myself because I put a lot of time into painting that special bike for her. Not long after that, I walk outside uh, one morning and, my little white Jeep Cherokee I used to drive is gone. Make them snatched it. Of course, I sell them like vehicles. I, I'm inviting somebody to come steal one, but they did. And I called the police. They ended up finding it three or four days later. was steering column busted out of the side of it where they busted it out to, to hotwire it and get it started. But I remember walking out of my house that morning thinking, where's my Jeep? And when it dawned on me that somebody stole it, how dare somebody steal my vehicle? Who are they thinking? What, what? And you feel, you feel anger, you feel sadness, you feel revenge, you feel shame, you, or I did. You feel all these things. You know, all these emotions are running through your mind, and you're thinking, how dare this happen? How dare somebody violate me? That's what the enemy does to us every day. He violates your mind and my mind every day, never in a huge way, never saying you're totally mine, but saying this nugget's mine, this thought's mine, this action's mine. And as he begins to, to, to be the puppeteer and begins to sow things in us that we think are normal now, we start to lose, the, the things start to die away that were once precious to us, the godly things, the, the things that, that are resurrection-oriented, the things that, that make us think and look and talk and act and, and, and live like our Savior. They start to die away. And we don't see them dying away. We, we get back 20, 30 years from that scene and reflect on it and think, I used to be that. I used to think that. I used, to, I used to pray this way. I used to, his word used to be more fresh to me than it is now. And, and, and church used to mean more to me than it does now. And my life used to be different. What happened? What happened was the incremental liar came in and said, can't trust that, can't trust that, can't trust that. And I started to believe him one little bit of nugget at a time. And, and I looked at years down the road and think, what happened? And what happened was the enemy happened. And he started stealing away from us, violating us, one thought, one action at a time things that didn't belong to him, things that belonged to the Savior. We, we belong to him. We're his possession if we prayed to receive Christ. And, he, and consequently, he says, no, you're not. You're, you're mine. You belong to me. I'm the prince of the power of the air. I, I know every lie to tell to get you to believe me. And he does, and he's crafty at it. Here's what I want to challenge us to do today. If that's you, if, you, if you're sitting here today, years removed from how you used to be, longing for that fire again, that zeal again, that joy again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you to, to spit in the, in the eye of the enemy to pick up this book and go take those things back from him. Go take the things back that he's stolen from you to say, that's not really, really who you are, and spit in his eye. Yes, it is. This book says who I am. 
That's not how you think. Yes, it is. This book defines me. That's not, that's, not, that's not a priority that you need to live by. Yes, it is. This book defines those priorities. It defines the, the things that I should do and believe and walk and live and work and act and think and, and, and relate to. And so the things that have been stolen away, the things that need resurrected in you, I want to challenge you to go back and get. For some of you, it may look like joy. Your joy may need to be resurrected today. That may be you. For others of you, it may be passion. Things you're passionate about that you used to, there used to be a fire about this, and that fire is gone. What happened to it? That needs to be resurrected. It may be your marriage. It may be your career. It may be things that you never thought about years ago. Whatever you'd ever sway from, you'd ever see as unimportant, and yet here they here they've come. It may for some of us be attitude. For others of us, it may be our our ability to forgive. Whatever it is, it may be your desire to give, your desire to love, your desire to serve. Where have the fire for those things gone? Those are the things that need to come alive. Those are the things that need to be resurrected and can be if we start to see a living, risen Savior in us, a resurrected one to resurrect the things in us. We start to have to see him the way he is instead of the way we've been defined by the enemy. Victory is yours. You know why? Because there's a blood-stained, nail-ridden cross that's empty. Victory is yours. You know why? There's a tomb where there's nobody there anymore. Victory is yours. You know why? There's a living spirit inside of you to pull, to woo, to draw, to teach, to stir, to challenge, to change. You know why? There's a living word in your hand to move you from where you are to where you want to be. Everything around you is alive. Everything about him is alive. The question is, are you willing to use those things to resurrect the things that have died? The things, your joy, your marriage, your career, the things that have died away. And you think, I didn't mean for this to happen. Nobody ever does. We look years later down the road and we, we become numb to that, to this. And those things need to be resurrected. Pick up his word. Pick up the truth of an empty tomb. Pick up the power of a living Savior and go take those things back from the enemy. Go resurrect those things back to life. You deserve those things. You were defined for those things. And you've allowed the enemy to redefine who you are. Let's take that back today. Resurrect the things that need to be resurrected. Let's pray.